1971, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios was in the midst of financial struggle. The studio had begun to cut their film production and started to sell off portions of their backlot to real estate developers to help pay the bills. Fortunately for them, they had a low-budget hit that was set to take theaters by storm in July and become a cornerstone of a new genre of filmmaking. That film is the exploitation hit, Shaft. The ushering in of the exploitation era served as a prime example of what we all have a better understanding of now, representation matters. And studio executives knew how to exploit it, hence the term exploitation. While the discussion of the genre, or era rather, could serve as an entire thesis, one of the core ideals is that studios would give sparse budgets to black filmmakers to produce quote-unquote black movies, with the understanding that black audiences would come out to support the films despite the lower production values. This can be readily seen in Shaft's success by earning over $12 million on a budget of only $500,000, a net profit that is considered a saving grace for the financially struggling MGM studios. Built on the backbone of swaggering attitude, New York City grit, and an Oscar-winning soundtrack written and performed by Isaac Hayes, Shaft was a cultural phenomenon that provided a new modality in filmmaking that would push culture into the 1970s. Shaft was not only a smart and edgy film, but became the first film to feature an openly gay character, gave Isaac Hayes the opportunity to become the first African-American to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song, and became the first film franchise to feature a black leading man. And to that end, MGM knew that they had to keep the music going. Upping the budget to nearly $2 million and beginning the production process before the completion of the original, Shaft's big score also found commercial success, but lacked much of the critical acclaim of the original. Isaac Hayes did not ultimately return to make a second soundtrack after salary negotiations had reached ahead and a large falling out with director Gordon Parks Jr. Ernest Tidyman received more notes from the studio, including fully rejecting his first draft of a script. Additionally, this film was written directly for screen, lacking the original book source material of the first film. Though this film was less successful than its predecessor, it is still a major role player in the lure of black exploitation filmmaking and 1970s filmmaking. The attitude, sexuality, and representation of the first film spilled over into the second and eventual third film in this timeless franchise. A short turnaround from the first, released 360 days after its predecessor, Shaft's big score became a valiant effort to punch up the original and give audiences even more to latch onto in the grit and grime of a contemporary New York City. Welcome to the follow-up. So, I, I guess... Let's start a little bit with um, the turnaround time of the films, right? So Shaft comes out in 71, and MGM immediately was like, we're doing it again. And I like I get it from an economic standpoint from them, and I get it from a trying to latch on to it. But you can't help but wonder with what seems kind of like a weaker film if the extra time wouldn't have been, I mean, much needed. And that is, you know, that's part of what makes black exploitation movies the genre that it is or like, you know, the era of filmmaking that it was, which is there is less money involved. There is less time for consideration because ultimately the films, while respected by their audiences and given greater credence over time, um did not have the respect of the production companies, did not have respect of the studios. They, they were seen as lesser because of the, the race aspect. So, um, like, can you imagine sitting there in 1972? Like, how, how would you... F- I, guess, I guess I'm trying to think of what the, the closest analog is to this, and maybe it's Marvel, with how mm. frequently they turn those movies out, you know? Well, and it's similar in that... If you're a Marvel fan, you're going to see every Marvel movie that comes out, no matter how shitty it is. And some of them are not great, even though they have huge budgets and resources that these black exploitation films didn't have. But but it's similar in that, um, as we mentioned in the intro, you know, studios were depending on the fact that black audiences cared so much about that representation that... The story didn't matter as much as 
kind of selling tickets and getting butts in seats. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think to that end, the film's plot is a little bit more um, cliched, a little bit more like rot than the originals is. Because the original is, is kind of like, we don't know anything about Shaft. Mm. We know he's like a private eye, but we don't really see him work as a private eye. We, we, we just like know he is one. And then all of a sudden, like the film starts and he's in the middle of it, right? The film starts, he's at uh, a place getting a haircut and the guys are like, hey, Shaft, some fucking guys are looking for you. And they're in your office and they're going to try to kill you the second that you show up. Like we're 10 minutes in the movie and someone's already died. Mm-hmm. Like it's bam. And I think part of that is, you know, it comes from a book. So obviously there's been more time to kind of flesh out some ideas and what, what, what not. Whereas in, in the sequel, it's, um, it's running a scam, right? Like, so we, we, we come into the movie with the, uh, Shaft's friend is like, I'm gonna die, or I'm I'm worried about myself. Whatever, like he he's trying to to get some protection, essentially because he's about to run an insurance scam, uh, or you know he's kind of like embroiled. I guess is a better word in an insurance scam, mm-hmm. and from that end, it goes from being this kind of like film noir ish underbelly of society that Shaft keeps going layers into, right? Like it's a Howard Hawks movie into being a little bit more of a straightforward kind of like private eye bogey, just a, you know, a a dick outside of the law kind of guy. And it, I think loses some of what made Shaft cool in the process. Did you feel Shaft was as maintained as cool between the two movies? I don't think so. Because the first one, you're, I mean, you get the same, like, he's a womanizer, he's cool as ice, like, kind of vibe. But you don't, like, the first one, I think, did a really good job of kind of illustrating why he was the guy that you'd want to call in the event of you know, goings-ons, you know what I mean? Um, Whereas the second one, like, again, we hop right into the action just like in the first one, but it's less of a sexy uh, story. Well, yeah, I I would, I mean, inherently an insurance scam is less sexy than, uh, I guess, like a kidnapped daughter is really like the, we un- end up discovering is the plot of the first one. Mm-hmm. But part of what makes that kind of cool is that you have to uncover that that's the plot. Right. right. And so you're following Shaft as he gets to ultimately do some of the detective work that leads to him continually unfolding the plot at hand. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, you spend a lot more time with the bad guy because we have to Instead of allowing Shaft the ability to put the pieces together, like what we get in the first one, it's much more about like, oh, well, Kelly is going to go, Johnny Kelly is going to go meet with our main bad guy, Gus Muscola, who is also so much less intimidating of a bad guy than Bumpy Jonas. I mean, also, and, worst name. <laughs> way worse name. And I'll, I'll, I want to talk more about Gus Muscola's character in a minute, um, but... Because so many scenes involve the bad guys telling us what the stakes are and telling us everyone's motivations, Mm. you inherently get fewer scenes of Shaft kind of like being cool and creative and smart. Like the scene in the first one where Shaft pops into the bar right before going home and he sees that the two gangsters that he knows are following him are there and he like plays bartender to trick them and he like you know fucks with the lights in his apartment like he had a whole plan and it's so cool it's so fucking cool to see him like have the upper hand navigate his way through the situation come out on top like he kicks a little bit of ass in the bar you see him be smart 
And it's not that you don't see him be smart in this movie, but none of it's nearly as fun because the film relies upon the bad guys telling you why we're doing what we're doing, what needs to happen. Like, instead, Shaft becomes almost more of a passive participant than he does so active. Yeah, I found the second one to be boring for that reason. Like, the, the first one... And I can't tell if that's also... I mean, like in talking about sequels, right? Are do do sequels inherently have to, um, you know, up the ante because we already know the character and we, you know, we're not learning about him, so it's not as exciting. Like there's, you know, it's really easy to get pulled into the first one because we're meeting Shaft for the first time, um. And so like that cool effect really is hammered home and we're like uncovering it. So the, 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 what am I trying to say? Like the mystery in and of itself, not only was that drawing you in, but also like this, who is Shaft? Um, but the second movie, I don't know. We don't, we don't get any of that. Cause it, it really predicates on the fact that we know who this guy is. And I don't know, because we were more concerned with like the actual, crime and the crime also just happens to be like i mentioned less sexy and less interesting and less fun um i don't know i just i found it to be really boring yeah on because i mean and also in in the first one like you get some of the the militarism of the time you know it's a little bit like sam greenlee the spook who sat by the door you know and in the next one it's a lot more like yeah they're running the numbers game which is obviously the predecessor to what we now call the lottery which is a legal institution but at the time was illegal and, and run you know in um predominantly black neighborhoods uh, and it's just not as enthralling cuz it's also like it's not like we don't know from the word go why Cal Aspie dies right mm. like uh, the stronger version of this movie is um, we don't see Cal Aspie put the the money somewhere in the funeral home. We only see, um, like maybe maybe he calls Shaft and says, "Hey, let's come on, come on down to the insurance office," and Shaft shows up and it's like burned out and hollow. And then we follow his journey of un- uncovering the pieces. Because and and this goes back to the the point that you just made, right? What is the goal of this sequel? Mm-hmm. And what makes a sequel of this type of film successful? I think the easiest parallel to make is probably James Bond. Yeah. Where we have, you know, a super spy, right? James Bond, super spy, shaft, like rough and tumble PI. And in James Bond, as the films progress, you don't really need to have seen them in order. Mm-hmm. You 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 don't really learn more about James Bond. You 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 don't re- like none of the women carry over. The bad guys don't carry over. It very much so is formulaic, but incredibly successful as it drops you into new scenarios for James Bond to kind of wriggle his way out of. And that's kind of I think what I would have liked to have seen. And in instead, it. It tries to maintain, I think, complexity of plot while lessening the complexity of character. Like, they keep the womanizing aspect of Shaft, which is great. I think the, the, the sexuality in this movie is awesome. I love the fact that, you know, like, they, they keep that, you know, they, they show... Because it's also used to show uh, how little of a fuck Shaft gives about the people along the way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're married? Well, I don't like your husband, so I'm going to fuck you. <laughs> like, right. oh, he's here? All right, cool, I'm out. See ya. <laughs> it's... Like it, it, it's it, that's a great character uh, bit, but the fact that you you lose so much of his in, you know intelligence along the way is also just kind of like oh okay, um, and let's talk about the bad guy. Uh, let's talk about Gus Muscola. I oh man, I get it. He plays the what was it the clarinet, um. Uh, is uh, so many scenes of him like seated at a piano bench playing the clarinet that were that were one incredibly long and drawn out but two I don't know what we were supposed to get out of that you know 
Because part of what makes Bumpy Jonas an effective bad guy in the first one is that he really doesn't do much. I don't think you ever see him outside of his office behind his desk. Right? Like, he very much so is... Like, you get the air of power and importance Mm -hmm. from the lack of seeing him, from the lack of action. Right? right? Like, he's... We know that he's orchestrating all of what's going on because the film tells us eventually, right? Shaft uncovers it. But we see him so infrequently that it actually makes him feel more powerful. And so to see Gus's character, like, living like a a Pavarotti-esque existence, he's got, like, this fanciful uh, loft, I guess, or suite of some kind... That's all like ivory colored, um, wearing a bunch of like fancy outfits, playing the clarinet. It, I, I get that they're trying to lean into the extravagance, but I ultimately, like, I don't think it works. Right. Like, what does it actually add to the film? Yeah. Especially because there's something about, Leaning into extravagance for a villain, but then having the number of dollars not feel commensurate. Like, I'm not going to try to say $250,000 is not a lot of money. And I'm not going to try to say that $250,000 is not a lot of money in 1972. Because I'm not going to do that math. I'm willing to bet it's a fuck ton of money. Right. But at the same time, they're displaying such levels of wealth. There is a helicopter that is in this movie, that is owned by Gus Muscola's character. And so to have this all be taking place because of $250,000, which would be a lot for, like, you and me, but doesn't feel like it's a lot for this type of character, ultimately kind of lessens the stakes in a way. I was going to say, like, what are the stakes? Is it more about the the principle, right, of getting what's owed to him? And and that I think would be the reason to lean into that like mob boss, um, the extravagant side of things is it's you know it could be five dollars it doesn't matter it's the fact that um, you know Aspie's uh, partner John Kelly owes Gus money and that's the reason for all of this. Right. It, it it's uh. It's Kelly trying to pay back his debts, which ends up becoming kind of a thing later in the movie, but also not really because Kelly then dies and it's like, oh, okay, I guess that doesn't matter at all then. Um, what does the does the money matter at the end of the day? Because what I'm seeing or what I remember is that no, it doesn't the, matter. The money I mean Mascola dies he's never gonna get his money and when the police are like hey Shaft where is the money he's like I'm gonna donate it to to a child center child care center um also if you've seen the movie Black Dynamite it makes the ending impossible to watch with a straight face mm. because all you can think of is Black Dynamite shaking down crackhead children telling them to stop being addicted to crack and it it feels like it loses all of its seriousness <laughs> funny. well it's funny because like at the end of the movie you still get that cool guy kind of one-liner but in a different way in the second film of like uh i know where the money is but i'm gonna make sure it goes to a good place like i'm not i'm not uh i'm helping out the cops but i'm not on the cop side which is what you get from the first film when he ends up <laughs> what was the line he exits with like Something you shit or whatever he says to the shitty. <laughs> he ends the film by saying like, "Um, he call he calls the, the yeah, I'm not he, helping he, you he, shitty or something yeah, he like that." He insults the cops in some way, which is great. Um, oh, here he, he um, what was it? Androsy, the cop that worked with him in the um in the beginning, uh, asks Shaft to close the case. And Shaft says, you're going to have to close it yourself, shitty. And then hangs up the phone and walks away laughing. Like, that was, like, pleasurable to watch. It's also, like, he's the cool guy, you know. Fuck the cops, but I'm also on the cop side kind of thing. And I guess we 
the second movie is a callback to the first in that same kind of way. But I don't know, maybe he's got it more elevated because of the, the stakes are different in the second film. I wanted one of my notes while we're on the topic of money. <laughs> one of my notes is what makes this Shaft's big score? <laughs> right? And that's the thing I, I, I like I forgot that this that was the name of the movie about halfway through. And then you think about it, and in no way is Shaft scoring in this film monetarily. He does get laid. Yeah, I was gonna, um, maybe that's it. But no, he gets laid in every movie. Like, that's not it. You know what I mean? And it's like, because that's a more interesting movie too, right? The more interesting movie here is Shaft saying to himself, like leaning into the darkness of the character mm. and saying, I want money. Like, essentially, if you think about it, there's $250,000, clean dollars, right? Like not being tracked by the police. Right. That is just kind of around, right? There's two criminals who want it, neither of whom would go to the police and say that this guy stole my illegally owned $250,000. Sure. That doesn't need to be laundered, apparently, right? So there's almost a more interesting movie in which Shaft is one of the the parties. Not interested in collecting the money in an altruistic sense, but is interested in collecting the money in a selfish sense. But they don't do that. So the he, there is no big score for Shaft to possess, unless at the end of the movie, because we don't actually see him like donate the money. The money, maybe in the end, that's like what we're supposed to infer. But also now I'm curious, what is the third movie? Shaft in Africa? <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. Oh the third gosh. movie is Shaft in Africa. Um, same. It is called Shaft in Africa. Same guy, or is Richard it the one Roundtree. with? Um, because there's another remake with... with Samuel Jackson. Yes, I just, I don't, I don't think I can do any more Shaft. Um, well, after... now you're curious with the remake. <laughs> I am. I'm so curious. Well, and it, it's also so interesting because there's a number of like minor adjustments made here in the sequel. And like one of the ones that I'm I'm curious about for the remake, having never seen it, is the the first movie takes place in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Like very notably so. The second film takes place in Queens. They offer no reason for that. And that's not to say that like you can't go from Harlem to Queens. Sure. You very easily can. It's a subway. Um <laughs> But they make it out to as though in the first one, Shaft lives in Harlem. They make it out as though in the second one, Shaft lives in Queens. And to incorporate characters from the first one, like Bumpy Jonas, almost feels like, uh, what are we doing? Yeah. Why, why did this have to change? Maybe if you're really familiar with 1970s um, Queens and Harlem storefront and geography, you could pinpoint out or pick apart the fact that it's not the same town in, in both places without them specifically mentioning it, which they do. But it's because it's such an odd choice otherwise. Um, and not to say that, not to shit talk Queens, but when we're thinking of centers of black culture, especially of great significance, I think more people are thinking of Harlem than they are Queens. Like the Apollo is in Harlem. It, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's some weird choices there. Much like Shaft almost never gets in a fight in the movie, which I thought was really odd. Because that's also one of the things that makes... Well, one, what makes Richard Roundtree, I think, a very effective actor is his physicality. And he shines in this movie, which is one of my other notes is that even though Shaft is being underutilized as a character, Richard Roundtree, like every time he is on screen, I was like, oh, that's right. This is why Shaft works. Right. This is why the first one was so fucking good. Because this fucking guy gets it. But he's like, he just disappears. Well, in the second, in the sequel, Shaft does get beat up. Which leads him to joining forces with Bumpy Jonas, which again leads us to back to the the first film of like now that mean that film means nothing now 
because he's now on the side of Bumpy Jonas. Well, I see, I can forgive that if they also incorporate uh, the element of, um, uh, if they incorporate Ben's character from the first one. Because part of the reason that, you know, Bumpy is a bad guy is, you know, in addition to all of the other reasons that Bumpy is a bad guy in the first one, is that he killed some of Shaft's friend, Ben, the militant, some of his dudes. And so if you're going to say, like, Bumpy's end of it makes sense for this. He's an opportunist. There's a chance to make money here. The numbers game was incredibly successful in New York in, in, in the 70s, which is why the state of New York took it over and turned it into the lottery. Mm. So there's a lot of money to be made here. Even if it's localized to just Queens, it's a lot of money to be made. So I get that from Bumpy's perspective. And I can even like rationalize why Shaft, who is an opportunist for justice, would do it. Mm. But it's almost like, all right, well, we just saw this guy like legit kill several of your friend's dudes, which had some pretty severe repercussions yeah. in the first one. Feels like that should kind of come up. You know, even in a passing way. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's it's that like, I'm dying to know what the first draft of the script was that got thrown out by the studio. Yeah. Because I almost wonder if it did lean a little bit more into maybe some of the um, insurgency or, or black power aspects of the 70s and of the media that was being churned out at the time. Again, like there's a lot of feeling of like Ben's character almost feels like the main character of the spook who sat by the door. And it's like to have that incorporated into the first one is like a really cool feeling. Like that's kind of what you'd want to see out of a sequel. And you got to wonder if that's what it was. Cause there's no way that this was what the first draft was. Yeah. It almost kind of, plays to me and uh you can take this out if this uh, if this reference doesn't work for you but like almost a little bit like the the a-team movie right like never seen it okay so but you're familiar with the show right yes and like that wasn't great writing right you know like it was there for a very specific perfect purpose but this kind of almost felt like that in like from episode to episode of the A-Team, you knew that, like, okay, Face was going to use his charm. Um, uh, Murdoch was going to use his uh, his goofiness and his wit. Like, everybody had their thing. And it didn't matter where the story took you because you at least knew that you were going to get those main character traits that you loved about the gang and why you kept watching the show. Shaft 2, it's like, you still get the womanizer thing. He's still, like, pretty cool. You know that he's still, um, he's an opportunist for justice, like you said. So, like, you can appreciate those things about him, which also kind of plays into the fact that, like, if you're an A-Team fan or whatever, you're going to keep watching every episode of the A-Team. Just Walker, Texas Ranger, not great story writing. You're going to keep watching it because it's more about seeing the character go on another wacky adventure than it is about the depth of the story. And I felt like this was, like, a weird mix between that of, like, okay, we get to see Shaft do his thing, but, like, oh, shit, now we have to write a whole story weaving all of these things together. It almost feels like some of the writing of this was built around the larger budget. Speaking specifically to the helicopter, mm. there's a car chase, and I think there's a speedboat chase, if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah, like, and when I say all three of those were superfluous or just not interesting looking, like, not well done, they they all felt completely useless. They all felt superfluous. And, like, a car chase is such a difficult thing because in order for it to look... A single car chase to look good, it has to be, like, a lot of money. Yeah. it it It's not an easy feat to do cheaply because of how many other individual cameras you need tracking the entirety of the shot so that you have multiple angles... Or you have to keep redoing How many it. takes, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to require a significant amount of uh, capital. You know, that you're going to need... If you're, gonna, if you're planning on crashing a car in your car chase, which yeah. is part of what makes car chases cool on film, you're going to need a few cars then that you can justifiably total. Yeah. And that might be cheap. It might be expensive. Like, it, it, tough to say. 
And it feels like the filmmakers of, of this one were like, oh, all right, well, you know, we made Shaft a, a killer film on nothing. We have quadrupled the budget. I Let's... bet we'll do it. I bet we'll, we'll kill it. Yeah. And the helicopter feels kind of lame. Or at least, like, it, it feels unneeded. The car chases are not great. Or car chase singular. Because um, it is done, like, it looks cheap. Yeah. It felt like it was pulled out of the book of, like, action scenes 101. Car chase. Helicopter chase. Get him in the water. Do a speedboat thing. Like... It wasn't executed well, but again, I feel like this film was more so checking the boxes because if you're in the studio's perspective of like, um, again, and I don't know if this this is about this genre specifically, right? Because we you've seen other black exploitation films that does that does this well, right? Like this is just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't seen many other black exploitation films, but, um. I'd imagine the studios are like, <laughs> black audiences are going to love it because it's Shaft and he's doing the action thing and he's like getting his little quips in there and his lines, as opposed to like recognizing that any moviegoer also appreciates like well executed stunts and choreography and also, you know, a script that makes sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? I. I I yeah I do I I think part of it's a function of the lack of uh, interest or concern from the studio. I also think part of it is the hubris of Gordon Parks Jr. because you have a man right who in Isaac Hayes who is one of the best songwriters and filmmaker filmmaker uh, uh, musicians of his time, like widely recognized. During his life, mm-hmm. we have several Isaac Hayes records in this apartment. Mm-hmm. He won a fucking Oscar, the first black man to win in that category uh, for your movie. And you got into such an argument with him that he left the movie. And what did Gordon Parks Jr. do to compensate for the loss of Isaac Hayes as the composer for the film? He said, I'll fucking make the music. And he made the fucking music for the sequel. And you gotta wonder, like, okay, so you've you've let your head get so fucking big mm-hmm. that you 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 lost Isaac Hayes and you don't have a book to work off of. So this is essentially just the brainchild of you and Ernest Tidyman. Yeah. And I'm willing to bet that if you took such, you know, nails to Isaac Hayes, you're probably <laughs> You're probably not being gentle and using kid gloves with Ernest Tideman either. So, in thinking about the, the questions we've asked ourselves every time um, we've talked about a sequel, furthering the story of the original. Now, th- this isn't like um, Color of Money where the the journey is the, the character arc, right? This isn't like... Uh, a, a sequel in which we need to advance our understanding of the human condition in some way or, or a specific character who is going to inhibit further growth. Um, it is meant to be more of like a shafted XYZ in the first film. He will do ABC in the second film. Um, to that extent, do you find the continuation of the story successful? No, I don't think it was successful in furthering the story of Shaft because it was boring. And you had expressed concern to me before we started recording because you had said that this was kind of a boring movie and you didn't have a lot to say about it. Yeah. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Because, again, we don't need to learn more about it. Like, I'm not... I wasn't... I didn't finish watching OG Shaft <laughs> and was like, I'm dying to know his about his childhood. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I don't fucking care. That's not why he's cool, right? But what the film does, the the construct of what Shaft needs to go do in this movie is just ultimately not interesting. The bad guy, not super interesting, doesn't feel very threatening uh, in Gus Muscola. Johnny Kelly, lame name, uh, not also very (laughs) threatening. Like, he's got a, a... 
we're supposed to at times feel as though he is uh, orchestrating some some nefarious plot, but then also operating under the uh, guiles of a desperate man. But those two things are kind of at odds with each other a little bit. Um, so it's like, yeah, who fucking cares about him? Um, like the most interesting parts about this movie is when Shaft gets laid. <laughs> like I know. everything else is kind of lame. Well, it's it's funny because the taglines for the two movies, the first one is the mob wanted Harlem back. They got Shaft up to here uh, versus the second, which is you liked it before. So he's back with more Shaft's back in action. Even just like you can hear Gordon Parks Jr.'s like, I fucking did it. Right. I did it again. <laughs> you idiots loved it, and I did it again. Oh, also, sorry, just like with like the taglines, or the I don't know what this part of the theatrical release poster is, but it says Shaft's his name, Shaft's his game. What does that mean? And then this first Shaft's big score, it says a brand new caper. Yeah, it, it is a new caper. It's just not. It's just not interesting. I guess real quick, we should run through the ending of the movie before we get get too yeah. embroiled into our uh, wrap up questions. So basically, the film ends with you know, uh, Kelly had talked to um, Bumpy and to uh, Gus to try to get enough money to give to Gus to keep Gus from killing him because if he didn't get Gus the 250000 Do you hear how lame it is to talk about Gus and Kelly? I know. Like, these these are not threatening names. Bumpy Jonas is like, <laughs> that name is so kooky, he must be horrible. Even the cop's name from the first movie, like Andrazi, like, that's so cool. Versus fucking Gus. Anyway. Uh, so, anyway, uh, Shaft, literally, he does, you know how he finds out where the money is? <clears throat> He overhears a conversation where someone says it. <laughs> That's not even interesting. That's not even cool. He didn't even piece anything together. He just kind of like heard somebody else say it. So they go to a cemetery. Um, Kelly's wife is there. They 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 get away from the police. Mascola. This is one of the helicopter scenes. So so Gus Mascola and his men. Um, they they ride the helicopter over. Kelly, who uh, had you know found out first that. Uh, Cal Aspie had put the money in one of the coffins that had been buried, has already been to the coffin. Hmm. So he's there when everyone shows up. Um, so Kelly, <laughs> Deadsville, Shaft shows up. He, you know, it's like a weird, it's a really kind of poorly done, good, the bad, and the ugly standoff kind of thing. Like, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's, the Spider-Man, like, three-point Well, it's also, triangle. it's bad location work because the cemetery feels more like we dug a hole in, like, a local park and are pretending it's a grave and there's, like, not a lot of other infrastructure around here that makes it feel like a cemetery. When you hear cemetery, like, legit, the climax of The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, which is also a standoff scene about money that has been buried up from a grave also takes place in the cemetery, and you feel it. Yeah. Here, you do not. Anyway. Uh, so Shaft takes the money, he flees in a speedboat. I don't remember how they got to a speedboat, but he flees via speedboat. Um, Muscola's men chase after him in a helicopter, sh- shooting a bunch of stuff, accidentally kill Muscola, so now he's... Deadsville too. So both the bad guys are dead and Shaft has the money. This is the point at which it would be interesting if Shaft was like, this money is now mine. Um, Shaft escapes, hides the bag, um, like, you know, runs away from Muscola's men, destroys the helicopter. <laughs> um, and then the, the captain of the police from the beginning of the movie show up. Shaft doesn't get tell him where the money is. It says he's going to be donating it to the clinic that it turns out Cal Asby had been raising the money for in the first place because he was a really good guy. <laughs> and Shaft was trying to keep <laughs> crap from these kids. You know what I never understood? Tell me what you never understood. About these movies is about why these movies. after your leader dies, why are you still <laughs> chasing after Shaft? You know what I mean? It's like Muscola dies. If I was one of his men, I'd be like, well, 
boss is dead. Let's turn around. Did they want the two hundred fifty thousand well, dollars? So that's what I was about to say. It would make more sense if it was like ten million dollars, mm-hmm. because it feels like, like we said earlier, the two hundred fifty thousand dollars is only relevant because he's squeezing Kelly for it. Right. It doesn't right. feel like that's a quantity of money that Gus Muscola would otherwise be concerned with. And honestly, the second Gus, sorry, uh, Kelly is dead, Gus should have been like, all right, well. That's paid. No, not even that. Yes, one, but not even that. It'd be like, all right, this money's hot. There's a dead body here. Kind of fuck it, because we just went from owning 60% of Kelly's numbers racket to owning 100%. Of Kelly's money racket. Back to the original, yeah. And that should have been l- enough for it to be like, oh, okay. I, I I won. You know what I mean? But he was still up against Bumpy Jonas, who... Uh, but he didn't know that. Oh. Kelly knew that because he was pl- offering it up to both sides to just try to raise money and get out of a situation. Gus didn't know that. Anyway, but this yeah, movie fucking sucks. Like, well, it, it, it's not, you know, I, I won't go so far as to say it sucks because I love Richard Roundtree. He's so good in this. But there wasn't enough of him. It was so know, boring. So Every time he wasn't on screen, you're like, why am I fucking watching this movie? I mean, you're right. Like, and it, he, the problem is he's not on screen a whole lot. And, but just to put a bow on it, it like, the fact that Gus Muscola dies for $250,000 feels like dumb. It feels really dumb. And the fact that his men so all right, so you're you're like like you were just saying. You're you're Gus's guys. Gus is dead. Mm-hmm. So first of all, Kelly's dead. Mm-hmm. So again, you now own a hundred percent of his numbers racket. Okay. Gus is really adamant about the two hundred fifty K. Whatever. Uh, Gus is dead. Okay. Yeah. Now it's really not worth it because theoretically you are all criminals. <laughs> And yeah. we've seen his right-hand man express some, like, displeasure in the scenes that we had that took place in uh, Gus's penthouse. Like, I, it almost felt like there was going to be an ending in which the right-hand man killed Switch Gus. It. Yeah. And the fact that they cared this much, I was like, why? Yeah. Again, you have kind of won. And also, like, if Shaft just killed my boss, I'm sure as hell he could kill me. You know what I mean? Like, at that point, just go home. Just go take, home. Take the the L, if you will. But also, I think for Gus, and not to get too wrapped up in this, again, like, I think it goes back to principle. Cause it, but, but like you are saying, the principle thing would end once Kelly died. But then he was like, I feel like Gus was like, well, now I'm out at Shaft. Now Shaft's trying to fuck me over. So I'm going to go after him. It's like there there could be a point made about greed being the the thing that leads to Muscola's downfall. But right. the problem with that is that that's not displayed earlier. You know, if we'd seen uh, images or, or, or scenes of Gus being like ridiculous about money because he builds in this concept of principle, right? Because he believes that he, he in some way has has earned all of his money, even though it has been garnered through nefarious means. Mm-hmm. Then maybe that 250K would make more sense. But again, the impression in the film is this is not a lot of money for this guy. Yeah. He is only doing this because Kelly owes him money and this is how he operates, which is fair. Just not worth dying over. Agreed. Uh, so a- anywho, that brings us to the end of the movie. So, so to... to navigate back over to our um, kind of like wrap-up questions. How do you feel this as a second installment, specifically in a franchise, right? Again, unlike Teen Wolf 2, which we've done, uh, or The Color of Money, which we've done, this is not... This is meant to be a franchise in a way that I don't... I'm not convinced those other two were. I don't think I can judge it based off just... The second one. You know what I mean? I feel like I'd have to see where the other several Shaft films take it because if we're speaking just like in a franchise sense, I think it accomplishes what it was supposed to do, right? Like if 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 Shaft is supposed to be the the this beloved character, right? 
yes, we would have liked to see more of him in the second film, but again, he still stays true to who he is. You still get the cool guy thing. You still like check all the boxes. So I think for the audiences that this was intended for or the fans of Shaft, I think, you know, it's like seeing your favorite superhero in another installment. So I think it was successful in that to that end, but I'm very curious to where the rest of those movies took it. Well, I will I will say I do think in a franchise what matters is the continuation of the character right and to that and by that I don't necessarily mean it has to change or that there has to be increased in depth just that the character is successfully portrayed sequentially yeah right and to that end I think this is successful yeah right I would be disappointed coming out of a theater for this. But I would feel like, okay, a lot of good ideas and a handful of well-executed concepts, the final product is just not ultimately very successful. Mm-hmm. Like, Roundtree is still good. And, like, that's great. Yeah. I was talking to a friend the other day about um, the the sequel to, to Knives Out, Glass Onion. And I said the same thing. Like, I didn't care for Glass Onion. I thought it was kind of meh. But I have a lot of hope for the third one because I think that the ideas put forth in the second one um, show the type of creative thinking around the idea that I like about Knives Out Hmm. in a way that I have some renewed confidence for an additional sequel that just didn't work for me in Glass Onion. I like that perspective, yeah. Yeah, like Benoit Blanc, still great. Not a fluke. And if you came out of Glass Onion displeased with the movie and displeased with how Benoit Blanc looked, you'd be like, oh, fuck. Like, the magic's gone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the third one would be interminable no matter what. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't like the main character of the franchise, you're fucked. Yeah, exactly. And this film, Shaft's big score still portrays Shaft incredibly well. Like like we've been saying, the scenes with Shaft in them are all great. The problem is there's just not enough scenes with Shaft in it yeah. for this film to work. Just a quick aside, um, we were at the theater the other day watching your we favorite... the theater. At the theater. Your favorite movie, um, Avatar Way of Water. Avatar 2. Um, and still watering. The... <laughs> the previews for the next Indiana Jones movie came out and you were like, who needs, who asked for this? Who was still watching this? But I think it's like the, what you just described. Harrison Ford is going to be who Harrison Ford's always been in those movies. And that would make it a successful franchise. My, no, my issue with that is that Harrison Ford's such a fucking asshole. He refuses to let somebody else be Indiana Jones. Because what Indiana Jones should be is it should be James Bond. It should be we get a new Indian indie in there. <laughs> He's going to do three movies, mm-hmm. maybe five, and we're going to put him in a series of wacky situations that he's going to have to meander his way out of. And they're not going to tie together fucking at all because no one really needs them to. Which is what Indy did for its original trilogy. The OG trilogy of Indy is kind of that. They got themselves into a little bit of trouble sequentially because the studio didn't want... The studio wanted a different love interest for Temple of Doom, I think, but didn't want Indy to be cheating on his wife, so they made that movie chronologically before um, Raiders, which doesn't matter. Uh, but Harrison Ford is such a fucking asshole, and as evidenced by his many plane crashes, FYI, the fact that he won't let that shit go, dude, you're fucking 80, you can't fly planes. Sorry, uh, Harrison Ford bothers me. Yeah, I can tell. Um, I didn't realize. What bothers me about the new indie movie is that it should be dropped off to somebody else. So, to that effect... Which is what Shaft could have been. Shaft could have been Indiana J- or, uh, uh, James Bond. Well... That's what I'm saying. They end up, Elba? But they end up essentially doing that with Samuel Jackson, right? Well, no, that's a remake. Oh, uh, okay. Whereas, like, none of the James Bond... Actually, that's not true. 
one James Bond movie is a remake of another James Bond movie. Only Casino Royale has two versions. The original with, I forget who that was, and the sequel, the remake in 20... fucking 10, 12, with Daniel Craig, his, mm-hmm. his first movie. Mm-hmm. That's a remake. All of the other James Bond films are individualized properties, right? They're all their own stories, which is... And it has been proven to be a model that's successful even in the face of, of failure. Like, no one cares about the... Oh, Timothy, what's his fucking name? Chalamet? Timothy Dalton. Uh, like, the Timothy Dalton James Bond films, of which there are only two, uh, The Living Daylights and License to Kill, there's only two because they weren't great. But what makes the franchise of James Bond such a successful template is that you're able to kind of just be like, oh, that didn't work. Oh, well, moving on. Mm-hmm. Which is why we've had James Bond movies from Sean Connery's Dr. No in 1962 all the way up until No Time to Die uh, last, last year. year. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I it's... It's unfortunate. And as it is also shown in what ultimately happened with Shaft in Africa, which is that part of what has resulted in this film's uh, modest success financially, lack of success critically. Um, the film had a $2 million budget and had a box office of $10 million. Still a great ROI, but it's significantly less so than the original, which had a $500,000 budget and brought in $12 million. So mm-hmm. the, both those numbers moved in kind of the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Oh, my laptop. Uh, so Shaft in Africa got a, you know, uh, Gordon Parks Jr. got ousted as director. Shaft in Africa was directed by John Guillermin. Guillermin? I'm not sure. Um, and a new screenwriter in Sterling Silifant. And, you know, Shaft in Africa, also not a successful picture. Um, the It only brought in a million dollars at the box office on a budget of 1.5, so it actually lost money. Uh, and, you know, part of it's because the film got even more ridiculous than what we saw here. Mm-hmm. But it had the viability of being a, a, a really great franchise. It got lost, I think, in the era. Got it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think if, if there was a film that is Shaft, it can't be literally Shaft because now Shaft has been made and anything that is looked upon it will be judged against the original fairly, justifiably so, but uh, which makes it a little more difficult. But I think of a movie like this that you know is built upon this. I mean, look, Knives Out. You know, you have a a a a, a, a film that is built on the back of. Uh, a ridiculous character, Shaft being ridiculously cool, Benoit Blanc being ridiculously goofy, mm-hmm. that became a smash success and is leading towards a franchise that's going to have at least three movies. Mm-hmm. Shaft could have been that, I think, if it came out in a time like now, where money would be put behind this in a way that it was never going to get in the 70s. What is your overall opinion on Shaft's big score? Boring. Not a fan. I really like the first one, though. And I think there's potential to have made a six, a, a better sequel. Um, but yeah, I just didn't... I don't know. I got some of the things I wanted from the sequel, but not everything. Like, I'm still thinking about the scene like where he coordinate him and his guys coordinate like the hotel takeover. I thought that was so fucking cool. They're all like switching into the hotel. Uh, It's just like a classic like action or like heist style movie where like they're, they do the outfit switch and they go undercover. And then there's like, you know, there's a whole bunch of them in the hallway and they're like signaling to each other. Like, it's just thrilling. I, I, it's classic action movie fodder, which I loved. And I just don't think that was done well in the second movie because something like a car chase or a um, a helicopter chase in a speedboat, again, classic action movie fodder, but just not executed in the same way. And I'm sure that's much harder to execute. 
if this had been successful and we got a James Bond-esque franchise out of Shaft, who would you like your generations of Shafts to have been? Give me like an 80s Shaft, a 90s Shaft, and like a 2000s Shaft. I have mine on deck if you'd like me to start. Yeah, go with you. Okay, for the 80s, I think Carl Weathers. I I I'm I'm tempted to say Eddie Murphy, but I think he's too silly. And he did he obviously has you know his serious movies, but he has Beverly Hills Cop, and I feel like you couldn't do both, right? Uh, or actually, never mind. I take it back. It should have been uh, Danny Glover. Danny Glover would have been mm. awesome. <laughs> okay, so Danny Glover, not Carl, fuck you, Carl Wells, get out of here. The nineties. I would go with Tony Wait, Todd. Wait, did you say Danny Glover, like Lethal Weapon Danny Glover? Yes. Okay. <laughs> 90s, I would go Tony Todd. I think he was so fucking great in Candyman that, like, you know, he's got the, like, deadly, mysterious, still, suit, like, really sexy, though, kind of, like, uh, appeal that I think would have transitioned him into like that action detective role so perfectly. I think the 2000s then is just so easily built for uh Idris Elba that it feels almost cheating to pick him. I mean, he he w- he should have been James Bond. Mm. Uh he still could be James Bond like there you know, such an easy fit just straight in. And then 2010s I don't think Chadwick Boseman had like the grit I'd want out of. He's also I'm he's also too short. <laughs> well, I mean, when has that stopped guys like Tom Cruise? <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I don't know, who uh who are some of your guys? Who would you have? Oh goodness, I don't know. I I originally thought like when I think of of. Shaft, I'm thinking like sexy, cool guy, like can still be witty and funny. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of Method Man. Honestly, <laughs> I don't hate that. Method Man is look, the movies he's in are never good. Right. But he has so much appeal on camera. But I was thinking like, because it's either like Ice Cube, but he's too he's too if some of it, he tries too hard in his performances. Like, it comes across as too much. I feel like Method Man would be real real cool about it, you know? Uncle Meth. Uncle Meth. And there is one more. Um, never mind. I, I was thinking Omar Epps from Love and Basketball, the main character. <laughs> okay. Um, no idea what year. But then as far as, like, now, if I were to pick, like, a young... Hmm. Who's the guy? Oh goodness, he was in uh, the Zendaya film. He's a son of somebody. Oh, Denzel's kid. Yeah. Uh, is that Denzel's kid? Yes. Malcolm and Marie. He was it. No, John David Washington. That's Denzel Washington's. Child. Oh my god. Yeah, I feel I, like he'd be good. I don't think he'd be good at all. Really? I think I, yeah. You can tell he grew up with money. <laughs> you can so tell funny. by his performances that he grew up with too much money. How did Denzel? I, not, I think would be really good. How did I not know he was Denzel's kid? I don't know. Oh my god. You know who actually also would have been great? Michael Kenneth Williams. Speaking of actors from The Wire. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Kenneth, Will- Michael Kenneth Williams would have been yeah, a hundred percent. Also. 90s uh, Denzel. Could you imagine him going from training day into Shaft? That'd be so fucking cool. He's already wearing the leather jacket. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we don't have to get lost in this. Yeah. Well, this but was see, the most the fun I've had talking about Shaft at the potential other <laughs> versions of Shaft. So. But, but, and this is part of the, the catastrophe that is, you know, black exploitation movies of the 70s. There was so much. Like, Pam Greer should have an Oscar. Mm-hmm. She should have an Oscar for, for coffee. Everybody should have grown up watching Foxy Brown, right? Like, she should be revered in the way that, uh, like, Meryl Streep is for, respectively, their careers in the 70s. And Meryl Streep obviously had huge careers in the in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever. But part of the reason is that she got to feast off of the work that she did in the 70s, whereas Pam Greer didn't get that. Right. She got some recognition... In the 90s, once Jackie Brown came out, but 
didn't get nearly the the credit she deserved for playing pivotal roles in the 1970s. Um, and you know, Shaft again, like I've been saying, falling through the the cracks of poor funding. But mm-hmm. regardless, uh, if you had just come out of the theater in 1972 and you were like, you know, at this point, I'm sure that, you know, Shaft 3 was already in production. Would would you be interested? In seeing Shaft 3? Yeah. Forget the fact that we know it's yeah. called Shaft yeah. in Africa. <laughs> I would be. Yeah. I think so. I think I would be too. Yeah. I don't feel compelled to watch it now. No. I do, I do want to see... Uh... Uh, oh, Samuel Samuel L. Jackson's version, but I'm shafted out at the moment. Richard Roundtree also in those movies. Oh, I love that for him. He's so good. That's the other thing that I feel so robbed of. He's so good in these movies. I would have loved to seen him in, uh, you know, have careers that could flourish on the back of these instead of being relegated to being like a black exploitation actor, the way that you know, like. Dolomite or Marvin Van Peebles was well as a director, but whatever. Uh, all right, I guess in that case we will uh, we'll wrap up. Kel, do you have any any final thoughts before we uh, get out of here? I don't. I think uh, I'm looking forward to our next episode where we record the show much closer to the viewing of the movie, and I will take notes. <laughs> Kel and I were planning on recording this uh, <laughs> literally weeks months ago, ago. <laughs> but. Uh, Got sick simultaneously. Very sick, actually. Uh, couldn't do it, so, yeah. We, we, we got shafted, some might say. We got shafted. <laughs> the the long, loving arms of shaft. <laughs> uh, all right, yeah, great. I, I think I'm all tapped out. Um, yeah, th- this was fun, but, you know, wish it was better. <laughs> the movie, not the podcast. The podcast Both. great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, thank you so much for tuning in, and until uh, until our next episode. Everyone take care. Bye.